I'm interested in human thriving. So that's the bottom line. I'm interested in human thriving. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, John Amici, the psychologist, former professional basketball player, and the author of a new leadership book, The Promises of Giants. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Giants can change the world. We have this ability with our disproportionate power to to influence and shift and change. John Meachie is a former professional basketball player who, after his sports career, took on a PhD in psychology so he could use insights into the human mind to advise execs on how they could better lead the biggest companies all around the world. Alex Court, my colleague here at the World Economic Forum, interviewed John Amici for today's Meet the Leader. How are you, Alex? Hi, Linda. Great to be here with you. So John has charted sort of a different path for himself than most professional athletes. He's one of the few NBA players from the UK, and very few athletes pursue PhDs. But he saw that he had a unique perspective and a unique platform where he could give back. Can you talk a little bit about that unique background and perspective he brings? He has this unique perspective of of someone that's really done a lot of introspective work, really looked at who he is and what he values. And he uses that as a way to encourage the reader to challenge their own thinkings about themselves, about leadership. So he, he has this ability, which I don't see in, in, in too many leaders, to take something which is really rather complex and break it down into simple everyday language. And he rolls all of that into his new book project, which is, of course, The Promises of Giants. So not all of us can be six foot nine and be an actual physical giant. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the idea that any of us can be a giant? John makes it clear, you know, throughout the book that leadership comes in all shapes and sizes. And he, and he talks throughout the book, like even if you're, you're only able to influence you know, a small group of people, one or two people that report directly to you, you are a giant and you have a responsibility to use your influence uh, well and with intention. And, and as someone who's really taught me a lot about what it means to be a leader. Well, with that, I will let this interview with Alex and John roll. They will start with John's definition of a leader. Leadership is not a title or a role. It's a promise of a kind of experience. It says, if I only have the power to influence these two people, I will wield that wisely and well. One thing that I really took away from, from reading the, your book is uh, there are many different forms of leadership. And if we just think that there's one uh, sort of stereotypical or, or one model of leader, then we're, we're wrong. And we have to be very open-minded when it comes to recognizing leaders and also recognizing qualities of leadership within ourselves. Yes, yes, all of that, all of that. So it, it is so true that we've, we've all grown up with the idea of the strong man leader. Uh, and, and it is a strong man leader. It's all the stereotypes associated with that, the power and the willingness to use it despite collateral damage. It's the boldness with no restraint. Um, it's the certainty with no room for doubt. It's invulnerability. It's omnipotence. It's omniscience. The idea that you know everything and cannot be harmed. It's like all of that wrapped into one. You can look around the world and see leaders who embody that, even now. And 
it, it means that there's a bunch of people who think that that they have no place at the leadership table because they're not like that. The quiet man thinks that he cannot be a leader. His entire life isn't laced with bravado and volume, but he can. Any woman, you know, you kind of have to look to New Zealand before people think that there's a there's another woman who's a leader. But there are remarkable women out there who can do leadership their own way. There are men who are empathic and warm who think they can't be leaders because that's only for women. There are black and brown people who think they can't be because they see nothing like that around them. You can find your own way, your own authentic way to be a leader. You can find your inner giant no matter what. It is effortful. And to me, it requires three things. The first is introspection, because that's where everything starts to me. You can't be a leader if you don't know anything about yourself. And it is amazing. Uh, I coach some quite senior people in, in big businesses and our first conversation is often so revealing because it's that conversation where they realize that whilst they are technically brilliant and they know so much about their sector, once you wander into questions about who they are, what they stand for, what are the qualities that they have, what are the deficits they have, what are the things that they respect and love, their knowledge disappears. Their insights are, are, are shallow. Knowing yourself is, is really the first key to being a great leader, whatever your context. Then there's the interpersonal. How do you connect with, how do you communicate effectively with, with eloquence, with people who are both similar and dissimilar from you, from people who are both familiar and unfamiliar to you? Though there are skills there that we require and many people never bother developing them. They, they develop a skill to work with, to be able to communicate in a kind of transactional way with the people they work with and rely upon. But otherwise than that, never imagine Developing the kind of eloquence and authenticity that's required to inspire and motivate, galvanize. And then there's the organizational piece. And people think that's obvious, right? As a leader, you, you lead an organization, but not always. Leaders exist at all different levels. There's a law firm in London. And when I walk in, there's a young man on the desk, on the front desk in security. He knows everybody and everything that's going on. And I'm often amazed that nobody seems to recognize that this man is a leader in this organization. He sets the tone for this organization from the moment you walk into it. So your ability to navigate organizations, to use diplomacy, to, to pick your moments, to cause a conflict and to bite your tongue at others for the long game. This is what leadership is about. And that's what I'm hoping that I can help people embrace. Just to kind of pick up one of the themes that you're talking about is is diversity. You spoke about people of different ethnicities, people of different gender, you know, recognizing that that women can be leaders, obviously, both in, in the government side of things, but also in the corporate world. How have you worked to try and bridge some of those gaps? How how have the teachings that you have in the book and, and through the work that you do, how do you help leaders see or uh, help leaders uncover um, the leaders within their own organizations, people that are right in front of them, maybe, that they just haven't recognized as leaders. We are psychologists and human performance experts in my organization. And we're really, we want people to thrive. And so we talk about diversity, not because we think, oh, it's it's of the moment. It's, it's just, it's one small element of being a successful leader in a successful organization is recognizing that talent doesn't always look like you expect. I really want to win. And I don't think we have to do that on the back of sacrificing human beings' dignity. 
And my team is full of a weird and wonderful assortment of people. And I'm so grateful and also so frustrated at times because they operate so differently than me that there are times we're in meetings and every ounce of your leadership is required to just shut up so that their different way of operating can reap rewards. And at the end of that process, often it's just a five-minute conversation where you feel the tension rising because you think, I wouldn't do it this way. I wouldn't think this way. I wouldn't talk this way. And then five minutes later, you realize they've provided you a solution that you couldn't have come up with on your own. Diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity, even when it comes to protected categories, provides a richness. And not just to solutions, but to your experience. I I wouldn't forgo any of the kind of frustration that services when difference comes together because i know that it makes me better it makes my experience richer and our solutions more effective that that frustration that you talked about i think many of the listeners will be familiar with that feeling of you know they had a plan they had a vision and they want their staff or their partners or their stakeholders to come together behind them and support that vision and that roadmap Tell me, how do you help people along that journey when they are feeling that frustration? How do you how do you manage that feeling? You have to be unified behind a vision, but there are consequences to saying you've got a vision, right? If you're a small one-man band uh, as an organization, then maybe you can get away with saying, this is my vision and I've hired you so that you follow my vision. <clears throat> you get to a larger organization and people rightly expect that the organization they work for will have a vision that is meaningful to them, that that at least connects and correlates with their own purpose. And so that is both a process of hiring the right people, not just based on technical qualifications, which are increasingly irrelevant, but hiring them on the basis of an alignment of values. But it's also based on the promise, the promise that your values will be meaningful in the first place. You have to pick values that people can actually identify with, which means they have to mean something, have to stand for something. And that process often has to be a co-creation and an evolving one, because what you stood for 10 years ago is likely to need to evolve right now. And so co-create that, bring people in, help use people's expertise, not just in the area of their technical abilities, but in their experiences, help them bring more nuance to your values, your purpose, your vision, and then refine it. If you're not getting any good thoughts, it means you've hired the wrong people. The fact that you and your team use um, psychology, how does having that perspective or bringing that into particularly corporate environments, how does that help you with those conversations and, and help you work with those groups in maybe a different way than they would otherwise work? So our evidence-based approach is huge. And that doesn't just mean we look at a bunch of research and then say, do this. We recognize rubber meets the road, right? And applying some methodology to, I don't know, a big engineering company or a petrochemical or a tech company or a professional services company is going to require some different nuance. So we use contextual evidence. We use the insights from our customers. But more than that, if the evidence doesn't say it will work, if there isn't a why behind what we're doing, we won't do it. And I think that should be refreshing for people. The idea that if you come to us and say, yeah, we've, you know, we've heard this, you know, in response to racism in the workplace, for example, people are like, yeah, let's do some listening sessions. And I said, well, what do you want to achieve with that? And why would it work? Why is unconscious bias not a thing in your opinion? And why should companies that want to change their approach to racism in the workplace stay away from this idea? Uh, it is not my opinion that unconscious bias didn't exist. It, There's no evidence for the presence of unconscious bias. It's a corporate construction. 
in organizations in the early days of bias work, which was mostly about gender, people started to realize that when you talk to people and tell them that they are biased against women, they get very angry about that. They get outraged and they get defensive and it causes challenges internally. And sometimes some of your big rainmakers, men, will decide to leave. And people didn't like that. So somebody said, how can we tell people that they've done something wrong and often are doing something wrong and yet not be sanctioned by them for it? Well, you tell them it's not their fault. And that falls apart very quickly because what happens is you do the phone test with them. You ask this 78 year old chairman of a board of a FTSE or fortune company and you ask them, show me your phone. And nobody pulls out a Nokia flip phone from the 1990s. Nobody does. They all pull out a brand new iPhone, Android, and they can use it with alacrity. They can flip through, swipe, find what they want. Can they use every feature? Absolutely not. But can they get that call to their granddaughter in Australia? Oh, yeah, they can do that. Because this phone that didn't exist 10 years ago, with a UI, a user interface that has changed every 18 months, sometimes radically, oh, they can wrap their head around that. But they can't figure out that you can't massage the shoulders of the woman in their office yet. They can't figure out that you don't call black people colored. They can figure out a piece of technology that didn't exist a decade ago, but they can't figure out stuff that's been out of style for three decades. This is not unconscious. It's laziness. It's apathy. It's a lack of sanction. More broadly, social justice discussions, I mean, particularly in the wake of what we saw in 2020, there is much more maybe visibility when it comes to what corporations need to do to increase the way that they work in a, in a socially justice way. Do you see enough action being taken or do you, do you see that more needs to be done to really have that corporate culture change so that there is real recognition of the role of, com of companies when it comes to these big social justice issues? I'm not a social justice warrior. I want to win. People who are scared cannot perform. If you are worried that your mistake will be held against you as some kind of a deficit because of your gender, a deficit because of your disability, then you won't perform. You won't offer you insights. This is about winning. Right? This is why inclusive leadership is just a part of leadership. It's not a separate thing. In terms of social justice, many organizations have put black squares on Instagram. They have got huge narratives on their websites, on their careers page, often a separate diversity and inclusion page, which tells you exactly where it fits, right? It's not really core work. It's this thing that we need to have here for you to look at. And so people are making the same mistakes again and again. Inclusion is a performance prerogative. That is why I think it's cool. The question that we ask lots of senior leaders and lots of senior teams, what are the chances? When you look around your senior leadership team, it's not a question that you aren't all clever. But what are the chances that all the clever people, all the really clever people look like you? This is what it's about, not social justice per se. It's about the performance prerogative in the organization and the dignity of people broadly. I'd like to know, when you were writing the book, 
How did that process of kind of considering your views on leadership and putting them together, how did that change what you think about leadership or how did that change the way that you kind of speak about leadership even? I think this is one of the advantages of, of being a scientist is that your, your views have to continually evolve with the evidence. And so I think what's happened over the last two years, it, which is the course of writing the book, is a refinement of my thoughts and a demand from my geek squad, which is my group of um, psychologists, yeah, younger psychologists that I work with who are utterly brilliant, that, that they and I work together to make sure that anything I say has a basis in the evidence. And then to do it in a way that is more colorful and interesting and illustrative, if you like, because my, my style is to, uh, is to tell stories to illustrate research that would otherwise be quite dull. What I've tried to do is, is, is really refine these messages so that they sit like pictures in your head. And so when I talk about some of these things, there's a promise in the book, the second promise, which is I promise to commit fully to success. And that seems like it's really obvious and people can instantly go, oh, my goodness, that's eye-rollingly banal. But most people don't promise to commit to success. Most people promise to commit to not failing, which is a hugely different thing. And indeed, even those people who promise to commit to success don't always commit to their own. My mother wanted to me, me to be, my carer wanted me to be, uh, some influential mentor early in my life wanted me to be, and that's why I'm a lawyer, that's why I'm a accountant. And then they wonder why they're thoroughly miserable and not good leaders in their context. So promising to fully commit to success is one of those things which seems really obvious, but has lots of layers of nuance, and that's what I've tried to do with the book. The most successful of us in this world are willing to endure discomfort in the minutiae. Just every, those boring, everyday moments, they do the difficult choice. It's not this big, pivotal moment stuff. It's every day. So that's what the book is full of, I hope. These 14 promises that will, when you read the title, perhaps not be profound. But when you, you look inside at the nuance and the layering, I think we'll, people will find somewhere to grab hold. Is that why you've chosen to include even exercises in, in some of the chapters? What, what was your thought process there when, it, when, you, when you were adding those kind of activities that people should do after they've read a certain chapter? We've got, it's not just my brain, it's my team and I have come up with lots of really cool things that we use, that really consistent tools that have built up over time that we use in our coaching environments and our mastermind environments and our, some of our kind of team working environments. And so that's the one reason we thought it'd be great to share that with people. But fundamentally, the reason is that reading a book alone does not change you. And, and so I wanted to make sure that the thing that we should do out of course, which is to kind of rehearse and think, right, how would I use this? How would I practice this? How would I reflect on this? I just programmatize it into the book so that people don't have to go through that process. But there's some simple questions, some simple operations that will allow people to really interrogate themselves because the point of this book is to inspire reflection, to inspire people to practice new ways of operating around other people so that they can be the leader that they wish they'd had their whole life. One, one of the promises I had to grapple with was this idea of viewing myself critically, but not, not cruelly. If you're going to be critical of yourself, which I think you've spoken about, you've said the point of, of introspection is really important if you're going to be a real leader. Why why be critical but not cruel? 
when it comes to introspection, there's a huge number of reasons to be critical but not cruel. So I use critical again in the kind of scientific sense of it, a, a critical examination as opposed to a cruel examination. If you think of feedback, even we're talking about ourselves here, giving feedback to ourselves, you know, assessing ourselves. But if you're going to give feedback to somebody else, we all know what it's like to be given feedback that feels really hard and hurts us. I've had that feedback where somebody said, this is something you are not good at or not as good as you should have been on this occasion. It was not where it, and it wounded me. That's critical feedback. It wounded me, but it also gave me information that allowed me to make a change because it was specific. It was action oriented. It, it had real substance to it. And that's partly why it hurt because I could see the veracity of it. Cruel is different. Cruel is a club. That's the one who comes up to you afterwards and says, Alex, you know, I've just listened to this interview. I thought it was, I thought it was crap. And, and that, that's cruel in part because it's not feedback, because there's nothing you can act on there. Nothing at all. It was said in order to hurt you. And that's what makes it cruel. And that's the distinction I want to make for people. Every single person listening to this knows somebody who has no idea about their own flaws. Everybody listening to this, and perhaps some of the people who are listening to this, have no idea about their merits either. Part of critical assessment is actually being honest about what you're good at. Many people have been told their whole life to be humble. Being humble is rubbish. I have no interest in it, and nobody should have any interest in it. Because it is no less a lie to tell somebody that you are not good at something you are brilliant at, that it is to tell somebody you are brilliant at something you are not good at. That's why critical assessment is so essential. John, do you have a book or a couple of books that you could recommend around leadership or that, that have played a role in, in helping you determine what, what you love? I just happen to have some books here on my desk. <clears throat> uh, one of them is um, Covering by Kenji Yoshino. He's amazing. You know, he's a, a lawyer. Um, despite that, the book is excellent. The other one is uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, husband and wife uh, team, absolutely brilliant scientists. And they wrote the book, The Spirit Level, Why Quality is Better for Everybody. It's brilliant. Uh, and then this one, no book list is really complete without Adam Grant. Adam Grant's latest book, Think Again, he sent me this one, actually. But uh, regardless, if, if he hadn't, I also bought it on Kindle. It's really remarkable. He's so smart. I'm really really super jealous of his brain but anyway he's he's great and then if i'd offer one more thing there's um there's a book that was written by shelly kirkpatrick leadership do traits matter it was a trait leadership thing and we use her work a lot she wrote it when she was still a phd student i mean that's how ridiculously good she is what are some of the habits that that you depend on most to be the best version of yourself most of us wait until we are burned out until we decide to take action about it. And then we imagine after burning ourselves out for a year that taking one holiday will solve that problem, and it won't. There's this great, great phrase, and I, I don't know who um, said it, but it's called, you can't pour from an empty cup. Every leader should remember that. You can't pour from an empty cup, and you can't wait until your cup has been dry and dry and dry to try and refill it. So three times a week, I go for a walk. I go to Regent's Park. It's just one big loop. I come back. I listen to audiobooks a lot. Brilliant. And that's that's not because I think that's the path to brilliant leadership. It's just because when I come back, I feel better. And when I feel better, 
I'm a better leader. That was John Amici. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping us understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of that and Meet the Leader on weth.ch slash podcast. Here's a sneak preview. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, it turns out it is. It seems fairly clear that sharks don't like the taste of people and will typically leave the scene. On this week's Radio Davos, as it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, we're bringing good news to anyone heading to the beach. Most sharks, even the sharks that cause fatalities, are not actually eating people. Busting the myths built by Jaws and other shark exploitation movies, this shark expert explains why sharks, which pose little threat to humans, are vital to the health of the ocean and the climate. We have to stop sharks going extinct, and by doing so, you know, we can actually preserve the health of our oceans, which are in a terrible mess at the moment. And Dutch musician Don Diablo drops a summertime hit which will help regreen the world. People sometimes lose the value of what music can do. And by singling out one song and doing this campaign, Stream to Regreen, it brings back the impact that you can have with music, not just emotionally, but also on a philanthropic level. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Looking at the world's biggest problems and how we might solve them, this is Radio Davos. Thanks so much to Alex Court for tag teaming with me on this episode of Meet the Leader. And thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation and production of this show. Thanks also to Jerry Johansson for his editing work. And thanks so much to this week's guest, John Amici. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts and follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and Twitter using the handle at WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina. I'm Alex Court. All from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day.